0: I find this instruction that I now have to mic test my laugh hilarious. Wait, is that like because something happened? I think it's just that they know we're both in the same studio and we're probably going to be cracking up. Welcome to the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am here with co host Matt Iglesias and special guest Jennifer Williams of our Worldly podcast. Uh, if you haven't heard, you should listen to this week's Worldly episode because this is a special Worldly Weeds crossover week in which we're discussing earlier this week from the kind of global standpoint on Worldly and today from the political domestic side on the Weeds the implications of Trump's recent cabinet reshuffle. So we have brought Jen over. We have released her from the clutches of worldly we have been greeted as liberators um, and she's going to give us some actual like expertise as we try to tease out what this means for you know the state of the Republican Party and Muslims and diversity in America. Appa- apparently, not
1: to at you. apparently
2: on Worldly, they, they plan everything out exquisitely in advance so that so that bad takes are preemptively vetoed and not offered on the air. So Jen was trying to explain to me why my takes were wrong and on Slack yesterday. And I kept just saying, no, that's going to be the show, see? I'm going to say this stuff, then you're going to say I'm wrong. It's like that's a the magical show.
0: alternate universe over here. I love it. It's going to be great. All right, so so um, let's mod- the discourse. So obviously, Matt, what is your the take? cabinet
2: shuffle has now expanded to include this veterans affairs thing, which I have nothing to say about. So we're setting that aside, but I want to note that it has happened. There's a lot of chaos and not necessarily any method to the madness. But okay, so here's I I'm, I'm trying to reflect on the the moods of Trumpism. Uh 2016, you know, November, December of 2016, transition time, Trump is just one a big looming thing that I and I think a lot of people thought about was Trump and Islamophobia, that Trump and as a candidate had gone, you know, everything from sort of standard GOP stuff, like we have to say radical Islamic terrorism three times and click our heels to really like out there stuff like we're going to ban all Muslims from entering the United States of America. This was like a big thing, right? And like people start putting signs out in their shop doors like indicating that like you know this can be like a place of refuge like people thought something outside the scope of like normal politics was like on the verge of happening.
0: And to be clear outside the scope of even what Trump was saying like by the by the time we got to the general election campaign Trump had already started to walk back say the Muslim ban into something that like would fit within the bounds of you know conceivable policy. But there was a lot of, you know, I think it's fair to say that there were people who were worried that this was going to be like an entirely lawless regime. There were people who were worried there was going to be a lot of extra, you know, extrajudicial like vigilante violence. And there were people who didn't really distinguish between the two. And
2: and while I don't want to downplay the extent to which the actual things that have happened, you know, from there was a new extreme vetting announcement, there's been a lot of litigation around different versions of, of a travel ban. One of which is currently in
0: effect for the record. Right.
2: And yeah. and obviously there has been a real change in immigration enforcement in the United States. But that stuff, right? The like Kizir Khan up on stage at the Democratic Convention with this pocket constitution, you know.
1: Piloted. I mean, the fear is that Trump would create a like Muslim registry, like a right. list of Muslims right. in the United States or and s- round us up.
0: <laughs> right. And I mean, to be clear about this, this actually includes like we're not even to the point where we were under the Bush and early Obama administrations where there literally was the NCR's registry of— immigrants in the U.S. from countries, 24 out of 25 of which happened to be Muslim-majority countries, and the 25th of which was North Korea. Like, we're not even, in theory, if that's the high watermark of official Islamophobia,
2: we're not there. So at any rate, much as Trump's economics have been more orthodox Republican than his campaign was, his approach to, to these issues has also been more just like normal Republican stuff. And part of that is, it seemed to me, is that the the security cabinet was like pretty banal, right? I mean, between James Mattis, like a very normal Republican kind of defense hawk guy to Rex Tillerson, who it's never really been clear what he thinks about anything. But it seems like just like pretty normal stuff. I
1: think you think it's about oil mostly, right?
2: And but not even taking the oil, right? Um, and then you know, HR McMaster, who I, I mean, I felt for a long time was like an overrated figure in American life. Um, But it's specifically on the Islamophobia point in particular was like a real push in the other direction to, you know some kind of cooperative counterinsurgency helpy type thing. And I've been reading in the 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 sort of, as, as Mike Pompeo and, and John Bolton are, are coming online, there's obviously been a lot of talk about like foreign policy per se, negotiations with, with North Korea and stuff. But both of these guys, uh, Zach Beecham did a good piece for Vox on this, and there have been others, have like real ties to fringy Islamophobe type people, to, to Pam Geller, to the notion that, you know, American conservatives need to build social and intellectual ties to the European far right in a way that – it's sort of reminiscent to me of campaign Trump worries, right? And, you know, Bolton and and Pompeo are both – they're both figures who are of establishment conservatism, right? Like John Bolton served in <laughs> right. high-level roles in the Bush administration. Monk Pompeo was a member of Congress. So it's not like they're like arriving from Jupiter or something, but among Republicans, they both stand out for having more of these kind of ties, more participation in sort of real fringy Muslim bashing stuff than the typical Republican. And that's a real contrast, particularly to McMaster, who, if anything, was like, the reverse of that, right? Like a lot of kind of standard foreign policy hawk views, but much more personal experience working in the Muslim world, trying to get American soldiers to cooperate with, you know, Iraqi and and Afghan people. He
1: actually like notably in the White House as, you know, National Security Advisor pushed back and tried to convince them that using the term radical Islamic terrorism was not a good idea, which I actually don't care at all about that term as a Muslim. You can call it that. I'm fine with that. I don't care. But it's a It's a ridiculous argument. But anyway, it feels
0: like one of those things like chain migration that because it has become so important to one side of the political debate, the other side has kind of fairly inferred that there is some latent bias being expressed through it. Um, But I actually I don't know, Matt, I want to even push this a little further before Jen tells us that we're both wrong, Um, because I feel like Bolton, while he was a Bush administration official had kind of been – he wasn't quite an eclipse in conservative foreign policy world. But like there was a reason that we were discussing this on Worldly this week that, you know, when he wrote up this big plan for Trump to withdraw from the Iran deal that like it was not allowed to get to Trump's desk, right? Like for a while there during the Obama years, he was kind of – it was – assumed that because he was associated with the Iraq War and because Republicans knew the Iraq War was a mistake, that like his career was over, that like Republicans were, as a party were moving past, if not the you know hawkishness that led to the Iraq war at very least the people who had perpetrated it but with Bolton coming back in and with Gina Haspel now nominated to run the CIA it seems that there's both a rehabilitation of individuals associated with the Iraq war and kind of a moving past the the kind of counterinsurgency stuff that H.R. McMaster led had its was like a pushing further of the sort of stuff that George W. Bush talked a lot about about like Muslims are not inherently bad, right? There are some bad these Muslims, guys. but there are also lots of good Muslims, and we should protect the the good Muslims by going after the bad ones. And like that seems to have kind of it seems like what we have right now is the hawkish policy without the warm and fuzzy
1: rhetoric. It's also it, you know it's almost like these people were toxic for a while, right? Because of their associations, because of their, and especially in Gina Haspel's case, like very real, tangible associations with torture and things like that. But with you know more broadly, with the Iraq War and and the Bush administration, um, you know, they were kind of seen as like toxic assets, right? And they kind of couldn't be. But I think we've moved so far past, you know, time-wise, it's been a long time, um, that these people are kind of not really in the public consciousness in a way that they used to be. They don't maybe have this perception of being these toxic kind of ties to this administration, um, the Bush administration. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like we're bringing them back because we've kind of forgotten, or at least, you know, Republicans have forgotten or just the general public has forgotten, like even why they were important and controversial figures. Or, I mean, Gina Haspel wasn't a controversial figure really. It's only, you know, she was cloak and dagger. But anyway,
2: to me, Obviously, you know, Secretary of State, National Security Advisor, these are formally speaking, sort of foreign policy positions. But I have a significant domestic worry about this, right? Like, I really think a lot about the Pulse nightclub shooting. Right. That was terrible that that happened and that those people were murdered. Right. but And we didn't have an incident like that when George W. Bush was president. But we had
1: a couple beyond 9-11.
2: Right. Well, no, 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 no. no. But I'm saying an incident like that. Right. Like an, an incident that did not seem to involve an elaborate international plot. Right. But it was, formally speaking, parallel. For better or worse in the United States, as we know, um, mass shootings of strangers – like some person gets it into their head to get some guns and shoot up a crowded place is the kind of thing that happens a few times a year in the United States. The shooters have different motives at different times. Right. Sometimes like with this Las Vegas guy, we still seem to have no idea why he did it. But we saw at, at Pulse, we've seen a couple of times in Europe that versions of this incident can occur in the United States that have an inflection of like Islamism about them either because of self-ascribed ideology on the part of the person or that person's ethnic background, his family background, things like that. When Barack Obama was president, right, the White House had a clear philosophy of – what I would call resilience around those kind of events, right? They did not want to lower the bar for what counted as a spectacular terrorist success such that you no longer needed to coordinate the hijacking of four planes across 15 people and kill thousands to be like a major, like, like big deal guy. They didn't want to create a situation where a person with a gun who shoots four people, which though very sad, is like, now we freak out and and they worried though a lot about the fact that they didn't know if they could contain these situations politically, and they knew that they couldn't contain them policy wise right that like the gun control measures they were talking about you know were a probably not going to pass, and B not sweeping enough to make this possible, but Trump has such different political instincts on those regards, right and I would be tended to think that like our only saving grace from a real hysteria, you know, a a problematic, troubling, domestic hysteria in the response to some of those would be, you know, the fabled adults in the room, right? To say, you know, Mr. President, like I, I, I see what you're saying, but like. This will be really bad. Like you don't want to inflame tensions around this point. You don't want to go ranting and raving about how this is why the courts never should have stopped you from whatever, right? And now it seems to me that those adults are out of the room and what we have in place are people who are more sophisticated policy thinkers than Donald Trump, people who are more knowledgeable about the levers of government, but who basically share this view that, well, of course, not all Muslims are violent terrorists, that it's just sort of not worth it, right? And that, like, we should we should throw the babies out with the bathwater. And it's set us up for, you know, today, like, n- nothing bad is happening tomorrow, probably nothing all bad will has be has happened well. as of the taping of this episode. Not, <laughs> right. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, but, that, like, we now have in place the dangerous situation that I worried about a year and a half ago.
0: So I feel like there are a few implicit questions that I want to make explicit uh, before, you know, to like that, that Jen might plausibly disagree about. And maybe I'm totally off base. But I feel like one of the questions here is to what extent does an explicit foreign policy inflect the way that politicians and people deal with the, the quote unquote other in their own backyard, right? Like if Mike Pompeo is never talking about Muslims in the U.S., But he and John Bolton are out there going, there are lots of bad people we need to blow up. To what extent does that kind of inflect, you know, domestic policy? The second question is, how different is this from what was the case a year ago or from what was the case under the Bush administration? And the third is, what is the relationship between what politicians say and what like citizens say? Because, Matt, I feel like when you're talking about the potential inflammation, the concern isn't that... Donald Trump's going to get mad. The concern is that Donald Trump is going to get mad and inspire the kind of active Islamophobia and hate crimes that we saw in the days after
1: 9-11 right. So yeah, those are all really good questions. Uh, I'm not sure which order to take them. But so I think the easiest one here is, you know, whether this is the, you know, the ascension of John Bolton into the administration and the move of Pompeo from CIA to state is, you know, a kind of concrete change, a, a really substantive change. I'm not sure. I, I mean, I've heard this argument about Pompeo, like, you know, he's getting closer to the center of power now. And you know now that he's secretary of state, it's, it's even worse. And I actually don't understand at all why that would be the case. Um, he was already the director of the CIA. Uh, he literally briefed Trump every single day. He gave the PDB, the President's Daily Briefing, the you know Daily Intelligence Brief. Um, Trump used to kind of sit there and shoot the shit with him and just you know ask him his views on all sorts of things. Um, so I, I don't quite get like you know d- the director of this like broad intelligence you know juggernaut versus like being overseas doing diplomacy and you know in Japan and then you know South America or whatever. Um, I, I think it's it's not necessarily. Well,
2: Th- that's interesting, though, because I-, I feel like we've, like, read a lot about the Trump administration. And my impression—I've never really, like, read Pompeo described as, like, in the mix oh, on no. a daily basis that and, was The, in that kind the of whole way.
0: reason he got appointed was because, like— Donald Trump, who famously hates being briefed, really enjoyed Mike Pompeo's briefings. And like there were actually some weird concerns that, you know, now that Pompeo is not getting daily FaceTime with Trump, that he might actually have like, that he might not necessarily be in a Tillerson position, but that Trump w- might not like him as much. It's
1: a very different relationship, right, as CIA director. So you're essentially bringing—so the CIA was designed, built, created to be most specifically the president's intelligence agency, as opposed to, like, the Pentagon has their intelligence agencies and, and you know, etc. Um, State Department has their own. So the CIA was for the president. So you have Pompeo who literally—his job is to come in and be like, here are all the cool secrets we've got, right? Here, like, you are getting— And only you, and probably Kushner, but, like, mostly you are getting—Ivanka might be in the room, and I'm not sure where Barron is—but mostly you are getting all of the intelligence you're getting read in. And, you know, that's kind of just a general thing. Like, that's kind of a cool thing. Like, oh, I get, you know, access to this entire intelligence agency. This guy knows a lot of stuff. He has all the information. Versus— being the guy who has to go represent the crazy tweet that you just put out that has now thrown a massive wrench into a diplomatic initiative that the entire State Department was working on, or you know has to go to Africa and stand in front of a group of, of African leaders the African Union and— face criticism because you just called the entire, you know, continent a bunch of shithole countries. Like, it's a different relationship. So he's not going to be, like, bringing these cool secrets. He's going to be coming in as much as he does interact with the president, coming and saying, yeah, hey, uh, that wasn't wasn't a good move, Uh, you know, rather than, hey, you know, I'm I'm not political. You know, I don't have—not that Pompeo himself isn't political, but, like, the CIA directors, the CIA in general is supposed to be apolitical. We bring you the information— you're the policymaker. We have no, like, influence on policy. That's not our role. Here's what we do. Versus the senior chief diplomat, right? So I think that's— I actually so you think, think this is Trump really not that much of a—
2: This is not really that much of a promotion.
1: No. I, I think it's— At best, it's just, like, a lateral move. Um, I think it's— possibly a demotion i don't think trump really gets that because he doesn't really understand like how these different roles work he's just like here you go here now and i mean he'll be on tv more yeah definitely um you know that is one thing he'll be more in the in the public eye but you know he's fine with that he's a politician he can handle that um and then on the bolton question i mean yes he i'm not to downplay it you know he has gone on frank gaffney's show frank gaffney this kind of rabid anti-muslim ideologue um, and that's me putting it nicely, uh, you know, has this kind of radio show. And and Bolton has, you know, gone on a show over and over to talk about, you know, this kind of views of, of you know, us versus them and this kind of global battle um, between, like, the West and progress and, you know, the darker forces of the bad parts of Islam, right? Um, so, yeah, he's gone on those shows a lot. So it's not to, like, downplay that. But I also don't think that's necessarily his biggest focus, right? Like, he's— much more interested in their bigger policy questions right now, like North Korea, Russia, like the Iran deal, then, you know, the radical Islamic terrorism is not a huge part right now. But again, that goes to the point that like, but what if there's a terrorist attack, right? Like, then you have those people. But my, my question is, well, those people were kind of already there, right? Like, there have been reports out that like Jared Kushner talked to John Bolton frequently, like, even though he wasn't in the administration and like— John Bolton had come and given, you know, briefs or had come and talked to Trump before. So, like—and it's Trump. You know, he will pick up his cell phone and call anybody. And there are plenty of other people who can tell him this stuff, you know, Bannon and Stephen Miller, whoever. So, I don't really think that, like, just this one guy becoming National Security Advisor is necessarily this, like, seismic shift and now we're doomed. Um, I think it, you know, it raises the stakes that they he might have an additional voice that has some influence. So—
0: What's striking to me and both in terms of, yeah, Mike Pompeo is getting less face time with the president, but like obviously he's going to be doing more, you know, representing America to other audiences. And when you're talking about this kind of civilizational narrative that both Pompeo and Bolton have bought into is like you appear to be less concerned that the idea that there is evil in the world, that that evil is frequently associated with a certain strain of Islam and that it is our responsibility is either America or the West to fight it. I think both Matt and I would like hear something like that and assume this is obviously bad for Muslims around the world, including in the U.S. Like this directly (laughs) could like would have problems. And it sounds like you're taking a much more like, well, if this is what informs your foreign policy worldview, but in practice you're doing you're working on specific things in specific countries, it's not necessarily going to inflect the way that people relate to each other.
1: So the idea that like this view of like Islam writ large is—you know, means, like, X certain thing towards foreign policy, yes, I I absolutely agree. Like, there (laughs) are—I would prefer this not be happening, right? I would prefer we not have someone who buys into, like, bullshit anti-Muslim arguments that are based on flawed reasoning and outright insanity and lies. However, you also have the reality of geopolitics, right? Like, you have— the Saudi crown prince here in the United States meeting with J.P. Morgan and, like, all these—you know, and Trump and in the White House, as much as these kind of ideologues like Frank Gaffney will paint kind of Islam as this monolithic kind of wall of fear and scary threat, in reality, like, we have a very close relationship with Saudi Arabia right now, which is literally— the land of the two holy places, right? It's where Mecca is. We have, you know, a really, really, really super tight, close like counterterrorism and other relationship with Jordan. So we have this whole kind of alliance with a lot of these countries, not formally, but and against Iran. So it's not that kind of cut and dry, right? Yeah, you can think that like the Islamic threat is the biggest thing, but you're going to work with Saudi Arabia to fix that? Like, okay, good luck with that. It's, there's still the reality.
2: I want to take a break and then talk about that reality. We finally had, like, the first warm day of spring uh, yesterday uh, in Washington. As the weather gets better, you know, I'm going to be spending uh, a lot more time out of the parks with my kid. We're going to be traveling more, and it's really something to look forward to. At the same time, I'm going to need some sunglasses. And, like, here's the problem with sunglasses, right? You get, like, really cheap pairs, and they look terrible. But every time I buy, like, you know, an expensive, nice $200 pair, I I feel like I get ripped off. I get paranoid. They get lost, broken. So our friends at Movement, MVMT, these are the watch guys, uh, but they felt the same way. So they thought, fuck it. How about we make quality, trendy sunglasses at a fair price? So they're not plastic. They're acetate. You can get them polarized. They're sort just $70. They're going to be great go-to shades for the future. They look cool. And finding the perfect fair is risk-free because they've got free shipping and free returns. So, you know, you go on your website. You look at a bunch of stuff. You can say, you yeah, know, I want to try out something that's a little more out there. They ship it to you. you. You put it on your actual face. You send it back if you don't like it. So it's really cool. These are high-quality, premium acetate frames, not cheap plastic. You've got to see him. we have got tons of styles to choose from. Classic, trendy, round, aviator, mirrored, polarized for him, for her. Uh, you're sure to find the perfect pair uh, no matter who you want. Here's the basic. This is what you want to know. You want to get 15% off these really cool new sunglasses with free shipping and free returns. You go to MVMT.com slash weeds. Uh, so you know movement for how they've revolutionized the watch industry. Now's the time to check out their sunglasses. Go to MVMT.com slash weeds and join the movement. Your point about, I mean, the Trump administration in particular has managed to create like an even closer relationship with the Saudi government and the Egyptian government than we had before right. when these were long standing close relationships. And I think there's a way in which that cuts against the idea of a government dominated by Islamophobia, like in a Obvious literal sense, like these are Muslim heads of state. And, you know, so if you're talking about just like knee-jerk prejudice, right? Like, no, you're you're hanging out with these various sheikhs and dictators and generals.
1: Some and, of our best allies are Muslim. Right. I mean, Trump literally went to Saudi Arabia and gave a speech about Islam. Right. And he didn't fuck it up. Like, he didn't start a, you know, religious war. But another view of that,
2: right, is that these are— you know, when the British Empire like set up its various regimes around the world, there were local elites who were the governing intermediaries. And the existence of a local intermediary governing elite was not a counterpoint to the like racism that undergirded imperial domination. It was part and parcel of it, right? That like part of the nature of the Closeness of the Trump administration and the Saudi regime is a disparaging view of Saudi Arabia's citizens. That like we the Americans should be lucky to have MBS and General Sisi around oh, to keep these people in line, right? Whereas a Tensor relation without even necessarily going like full neocon, right? Just like I personally would be skeptical about spending a ton of time like hanging out with brutal Middle Eastern dictators because I kind of feel like they're they're treating people shabbily. I don't have like a real view of like what to even do about that. They just like they wouldn't be my pals because right. I think that the citizens of those countries are like human beings. Right. And I think Donald Trump sort of doesn't. So there's a there's a coziness there that's undergirded by the same it's like we want to keep the world's muslim population corralled Outside the borders of Western countries, we'll have our like hair-invoked democracy at home, we'll have authoritarian regimes abroad to like keep the WOGs in line. And like that's the policy here.
0: This is so, so big because it has been a fundamental truth of the Trump administration from jump that they do not appear to understand or like respect distinctions between a country's government and its citizens. You can see this going all the way back to the first travel ban where, you know, various iterations of the travel ban have judged whether people can come to the U.S. based on whether their countries provide enough information to the U.S. uh, to, to kind of, quote unquote, vet them, which has less to do with actual fears about vetting capability than it does, you know, concern that a government is supporting terrorists and therefore no person from that country should come. You see that in the attitude toward refugees where people who are coming from governments that the Trump administration doesn't like are viewed with more skepticism, even though by definition, if you're a refugee, you're being persecuted by your government, or at least the government isn't you know, stepping in to help you. There's just a lot of conflation of the two that comes both from this kind of racist realist uh policy that that matt's talking about but also just a broader failure to think about well not every regime is democratic and therefore not every government's going to express the will of the people like the the diwali statement that trump sent out you know last month right. like or no 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 no. it was it was the NORU statement i'm sorry oh, right. that trump sent out last month yeah the diwali um, one was yes. a while ago
1: and it was Horrible.
0: Um, But the Nehru statement was, you know, instead of talking about, like, Iranian Americans or the Iranian people, was all about how terrible the Iranian government was, which, like, isn't – this is where I think we see the biggest shift from the Bush administration in particular because what Matt was alluding to in terms of going full neocon is, like, neoconservatism is animated in large part by the belief that people everywhere want to be free and some governments are terrible about that and therefore we need to, like – help the people by destroying the government that currently stands there. So I, I kind of – I want to I want to talk about that a little bit because on its face, that sounds like a less Islamophobic way of looking at the world, right? That like, you know, the Iraqi people wanted de- a democracy and bad Saddam Hussein didn't want to give it to them. So we gave the Iraqi people what they wanted.
1: And it's worked out so well for everyone and, and everything, you know, everyone lived happily ever after. I mean, look, you know, I don't necessarily – think that John Bolton himself and, you know, Pompeo are going to radically shift Trump's thinking one way or the other, right? Like, I think there's a a fundamental truth about this administration, as you phrased it earlier, that Trump is the decider, if I may, and I will, in the sense that, you know, the actual policy, yes, gets carried out by other people. And so there's this kind of tension between, like, does anything Trump say matter? Because in reality, like— we're going to just continue to do the actual policies that he signed off on yesterday, even though he changed his mind today. But at the same time, like, I don't necessarily think that they're going to, like, radically shift his thinking. I think the the kind of—the fear, the broader impulse is they will kind of feed into his already kind of pre-existing biases. And that's that's a problem, right? So you had McMaster as this kind of, I don't know, counter-influence. But you still have Mattis, right? Like you still have Jim Mattis there, who is, you know, one of the so-called adults in the room. Um, I think, look, you know, if I if I had to have John Bolton at at you know as National Security Advisor, I would prefer maybe he not. Um, but he is, and I think you know one person is not necessarily going to make or break what Trump thinks. There's also the fact that, like, when we talk about the Trump administration as if it's some sort of, like, coherent, cohesive body, like, there's so much chaos, there's so much pull back and forth. And in some ways, it's actually—you have Bannon out, right? Bannon was one of the kind of leading— voices of this kind of anti-Muslim, this kind of global civilizational us versus them clash of civilizations thing, and the fact that he's, you know, fallen out of favor and out of grace, like, that's a huge net positive. I think he was way more influential than than Bolton would be. Um, but yes, I mean, it's a different view of the world. It's a more kind of top-line regime, U- U.S. interest-based rather than kind of the more broad, you know, neocon pro-democracy sharing, <laughs> if
2: we we'll call it that. But the, the, the Bannon point, though, is a, is a good one, though, because I think that sort of describes the the pendulum swing that I'm seeing here, right? right? which is that, like, Trump comes in initially and there's, like, there's Bannon and there's Michael Flynn and there's, like— A crew of people who align with, I think, some of the most dangerous and disturbing elements of the Trump worldview.
1: Yeah, those two were way more out there.
2: But that's it. But they were literally out there, right? They were in a – over and beyond like what they think. They were kooks with poor relationships with other relevant stakeholders. And like a really important aspect of the politics of foreign policy in the United States – is that the vast majority of elected officials don't care at all, right? Like, the number of senators who have, like, strong views on the substance of U.S. foreign policy is really, really low. And those who do exert a lot of influence, but, like, a lot of them don't. But, like, lots of Senate Republicans had a strong opinion about Steve Bannon. Right, And the opinion was that they don't like Steve Bannon because Steve Bannon has been a troublemaker, a gadfly, a thorn in their side, blah, blah, blah. So if there's a dispute that pits decorated General James Mattis, who they like because he helped them make trouble for the Obama administration years ago against – guy who wears too many shirts who they don't like because he's trying to foist Roy Moore on them and lose them Senate races. It's a clear choice. It's like, OK, we're going with Jim, right? right. right. Whereas like, Pompeo and John Bolton are both a little bit less extreme in their substantive views, but also a lot less extreme in terms of their like poor interpersonal relationships with Republican Party elected officials, right? Like Pompeo. Mike Pompeo, over and beyond whatever else he is, is like – was a House Republican in good standing, right? Like Paul Ryan – likes Mike Pompeo, Kevin McCarthy, like everybody on the Hill, Hill Republicans, they all like Mike Pompeo. And when I spoke to Democrats on the Hill, I was like a little confused. I was like, this seems like a meteoric rise for a like replacement level House Republican. And they were like, no, 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 like, like, Pompeo is nuts. But like, he's smarter and harder working than the average House Republican. Like, I see why he has, like, risen to the top of this barrel. So that's like a guy who could win an argument in the Republican Party about what you should do. John Bolton is someone who, like most Senate Republicans, like went to bat for in a contentious confirmation battle. And so we had the period where Trump was forced to take on mainstream figures who he didn't really like because he'd lost fringy figures who were alienating other Republicans. But now we've swung back to what seems like a more efficacious group, which is like people who align better with Trump's instincts than H.R. McMaster did, but align better with like what Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan want to do with their lives than Michael
1: Flynn right. did. But but the question is, what do, you know, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell really have to do with foreign policy in general, right? Like that raises the question of like how much influence, say, or, you know, at like efficacy or even just relevance does Congress even have in U.S. foreign policy anymore?
0: I I think the question Uh, here is not U.S. foreign policy. I think the question is what is the difference between a world in which Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell think it is important for their party to distinguish between uh, a tough line against radical Islam and Islamophobia and a world in which Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell think it is good for their party to be doubling down on the idea that Islam is a malignant force or at least that – A strain of Islam is such a malignant force that it is okay to be suspicious in a generalized fashion of Muslims, right? Like, I've been thinking a lot about the stuff the FBI has been doing since 9-11 in terms of trying to pressure immigrants to become informants, getting, you know, people who have been accused of minor crimes to go in and try to infiltrate mosques and tell them who was going to be a terrorist, getting these people who had... Bad social skills or mental illness, or who otherwise were like a little off and maybe could, would, were susceptible to extreme views and pushing them to like develop terrorist plots that they never would have been able to accomplish without the FBI's help. Like, all of these are things that Congress can use oversight to stop, or that like. Peter King has been holding hearings off and on for years in the House about like, is the FBI doing enough to prevent radicalization in our communities? Like they're the the, Congress can legit move the needle on that. Republican appointed judges can, you know, exercise a view of national security that allows that justifies a lot more ridiculous, like harsh treatment of detainees than is otherwise than like the, you know, than liberal justices might think the constitution requires because they understand that like we're in an exceptional time and on matters of national security the executive branch deserves deference like and then there's kind of the the state local like what is your police department going to do? Are they going to be, you know, particularly keen on, like, detaining any suspicious-looking Muslim man who they see anywhere? There, there are lots of ways in which this becoming a matter of Republican Party identity actually matters more, is, is at least likely to be more influential than what the Trump administration thinks.
1: Yeah, so a couple of things. I mean, those are all really great points. Um, one thing, though, the, all of those FBI or, you know, a huge chunk of those FBI roundups Also, just happened during the Obama administration. So it's not like I don't want to glorify the Obama administration's approach to this, right? Like, they were terrible at this. They didn't step in to try to, like, stop that from happening, right? Like, it ramped up under them. It's literally like how the FBI handled it. You didn't see Obama, like, stepping in to try to stop the FBI's kind of tactics there. Like, it, and, and the other thing to me—and maybe this is just because, you know, I guess I've sounded optimistic, but I think it actually comes from a place of deep cynicism in the fact that, like, as an American Muslim who has a lot of, <laughs> uh, I don't know, friends uh, and contacts and, you know, my social scene of, like, American Muslims, none of this feels in any way new or escalatory. I mean, you know, you've had CPAC every— every year and you've had frank gaffney there right like you had that under previous you know during the obama administration when you had cpac you had these people there so like i don't feel like this is necessarily that kind of new i I, honestly i feel like that's already in the republican party more generally there's already that view trump just says it more loudly Um, and that's a problem right in terms of broadcasting to radical actors in the United States who are, you know, race warriors and who are, you know, patriot militia groups and just regular people who say, oh, you know, maybe it's okay to commit this hate crime. Yes, that's completely absolutely not okay, And that should not be happening. Right. But in terms of like the political like institution of the GOP, it's already rife with anti-Muslim tropes and these kind of beliefs that I can't come up with a single person off the top of my head who doesn't probably ascribed to most of those views. So the fact that like one or two people, it, you know, who are also ascribed to this are now in the White House, like, I don't know, I guess I feel like it's already just so bad that it doesn't feel like a huge substantive change. Let's take a break, let's talk about neocons.
2: We're sponsored this week by Blue Bottle Coffee. Uh, This is a a really fantastic coffee brand. I had them for the first time years ago uh, before they had this service. It was just, you know, some coffee shops in San Francisco. I went. There was, like, an incredible line there. I was supposed to meet somebody. I was like, why are all these people standing around here? Then I finally got to the front of the line. I understood. The reason people were standing on the long line is that the coffee was really good. It's incredibly delicious. And now you can enjoy delicious blue bottle coffee in the comfort of your own home without standing online. You just gotta wait for the package. Here's what really makes a difference here. Freshness. Your blue bottle coffee is roasted and shipped to your home within 48 hours of you placing your order. So that means the beans arrive at peak freshness. Freshness it really makes a difference when it comes to coffee beans. But a lot of us, if you've been buying beans at the supermarket or from huge mass market chains, you don't really even know what fresh coffee tastes like. One sip of blue bottle coffee is going to make you realize that you've been drinking subpar stuff your entire life. So after trying blue bottle for the first time, I can really say there's coffee, quote unquote, and then there's blue bottle coffee. They've got this insane dedication to coffee. They scour far and wide, get exclusive relationships with independent growers all over the world. They're sourcing delicious and sustainable coffee. And then if you're worried about the flavor, you know, they match you. You take their Blue Bottle Coffee Match Quiz, and you're going to find the perfect coffee just for you. So from blends to espresso to single origins, Blue Bottle has it all. Uh, so here's the best part. If you hurry to bluebottlecoffee.com weeds, you're going to get 10 bucks off your first coffee subscription order. That's bluebottlecoffee.com/weeds, bluebottlecoffee.com slash weeds, bluebottlecoffee.com. I want to roll the tapes back to George W. Bush's second inaugural address, which is one of the loopiest documents to ever come forth in the history of America. is term interim Bush was weird, it, man. Yeah, but this, this is great, too, because, you know, foreign policy— a lot of politics there's always a mismatch between like what you say and what you actually do yeah. um and an inaugural address is a particularly untethered moment for any administration um but it still it tells you something like this this is what they wanted to say they were doing um we have seen our vulnerability and we've seen its deepest source. For as long as whole regions of the world simmer in resentment and tyranny, prone to ideologies that feed hatred and excuse murder, violence will gather and multiply in destructive power and cross the most defended borders and raise a mortal threat. There is only one force of history that can break the reign of hatred and resentment and expose the pretensions of tyrants and reward the hopes of the decent and the tolerant, and that is the force of human freedom. We are led by events and common sense to one conclusion: the survival of liberty. And our land increasingly depends on the success of liberty in other lands that is a bold claim right that I would not say characterized in a consistent way the things the Bush administration did in its middle years but there was certainly something of that type going on and there was a reason that they said it and it is it is very different from Donald Trump's view of these things. And it's different in an interesting way, right? I mean, Trump was clearly critical of Bush as a messianist, right? Like th- that aspect of the Bush administration that was on display in that speech. Trump was very, very, very critical of. And a lot of people, it seems to me, on the, on the left in America chose to read that as Trump being critical of like... American imperialism or something, and it's really not that. Like, that's not what Trump is about. But he was specifically responding to this strain that George W. Bush really did inject into foreign policy that was like – I mean, he's saying there that like you cannot defend America from terrorism through defense, Right. Like that there is nothing you can do in terms of border security, law enforcement, intelligence, apprehension that will work. That like the only way.
1: Well, They did all of that, too. Right. But, right, But, 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 I mean, but exactly there's a lot endured. of
0: like we're going after them there so we don't yeah. have to go after them but, here, but, which is but, not something you hear anymore.
2: But not but not even going after them there. Right. It wasn't like an Obama type preemptive yeah. destruction. Right. I mean, he's making a really strong claim that like we have to create democratic institutions in all foreign countries, not to be nice people, but like for the physical security of American families and America's vital interests and our deepest beliefs are now one, which like I, I don't think anyone has ever really believed that there's no tension there, but he at least said it. And it, it, it's a strong rhetorical counterpush to the idea of the Muslim ban, right? Which is like, let's just like take this problem like super literally and be like, well, if no Muslims come here, no Muslim terrorism, right? And then like the opposite is like, no, the only way to solve this problem is to like go through like dozens of countries and completely rebuild their societies from the ground up, right? This is like shallow versus deep counterterrorism. And that is really gone, right? Like whatever is happening in the Trump administration before after the reshuffle is not – it's not like the neocons are back, which I read some people say.
0: I I guess my question for for Jen with all this is like how much does this – not like what George W. Bush is saying versus what Donald Trump is saying, but like how much does the distinction between – you know, all people want freedom and we have to give it like it is incumbent upon us to give it to them versus like, you know, can't have any Muslim terrorists if you don't have any Muslims. Aha. Like how much does that actually trickle down into both how Muslims in the U.S. feel their government and, you know, Americans feel about them and kind of the relationship with actual like existing Muslim populations on the ground, either through the Pentagon, you know, through like the military or diplomacy or any of that?
1: I mean, look, you know, you can have, you know, like you said, but people give speeches, especially that speech, that Bush speech, right, it didn't actually reflect reality in a lot of ways, right? Like, yes, we wanted to spread democracy. Yes, you know, we invaded and occupied Iraq. Um, we, you know, invaded and occupied Afghanistan. But we didn't try to topple Saudi. We didn't try to topple Egypt, right? We still played the strong man, keep these guys in line game. So did Obama, right? Like, you know, it's a cliche among foreign policy wonks, but it's a cliche in large part because it's actually borne out by fact that, you know, regardless of what party or what person you have in the White House, foreign policy kind of trickles on and just keeps going because there are only so many options you can have, right? Like, you can just—I mean, yes, you can do these, like, insane black swan, like, oh, we just invaded and occupied Iraq. Like, clearly you can make dramatic decisions in foreign policy. Or, you know, you could bomb North Korea. Like, those are huge things. But a lot of times it's mostly, like, you have what you have to work with, right? Like, yeah, uh, maybe, you know, the Bush administration thought the Saudis wanted democracy. There was no fucking way in hell they were going to destabilize the Saudi kingdom. It's insanity, right? But to your question about, like, trickling down to actual American Muslims— that, I think, is definitely kind of a, a bigger issue, right? Like, I think that's completely valid. Um, and I I think, though, it's less, again, like, going back to, like, whether you know John Bolton and Mike uh, Pompeo are going to drive this. Like, again, I still think it just goes back to Trump. Like, we already have him in the White House. I think that's already the worst possible thing for American Muslims, right? Like, it, adding, like, this guy who, you know, was our ambassador to the UN and, like, goes on a crazy Muslim radio show is not going to, like— changes the fact that Trump already fucking believes this, right? And so, you know, when you're talking about how American Muslims perceive it, like, we're not under any illusions that, like, things could have gotten better. Like, we weren't like, oh, thank God, McMaster's there. I guess we're going to be fine. Like, it's Trump. He's the president. He is the loudest voice. He makes up terrorist, you know, threats in other countries that didn't actually exist, pissing off countries going, yeah, that actually didn't happen. It's not an actual attack that happened, right? He, you know, doesn't go speak at mosques like George W. Bush did, right? Like, we already know, you know, they, they're they not holding iftars, right? They're not holding, like, Muslim events, the kind of traditional way that both parties would do to kind of keep relations going. And, and that's—I don't think that's going to change one way or the other. I don't think, you know— you you can't get much worse than what Trump already thinks. Now, yes, you can be more effective in carrying out those policies, and that's definitely challenging, right? But it's already really bad. So I, I
2: think the, the, the point you were making earlier about the kind of like stickiness of American foreign policy is, is important, but it kind of cuts both ways, I think, on, on some regards, right? I mean, so it's true. This is definitely an area where— Like less changes when new administrations come in than you would think if you were just Looking at their rhetoric on a, on a surface level, right? Like the institutions are deep and sticky. The international environment, is, the deep state, is constraining. Will. Indeed. <laughs> um, so there's just there's always more continuity than the politicians imply they're going to create. And in particular, you can't do the kind of thing that happens with domestic regulation, where like if you just appoint some guy who's like some Republican guy to some Labor Department subagency, things will start changing, like on their own. Like right. no no one has to do anything. The flip side of that though is that crisis moments yeah. are really really important to foreign policy precisely because it's so hard to change things, right? So like because there were people at high levels of the George W. Bush administration who were predisposed to want to start a basically unprovoked war with Iraq, which is like an unimaginable thing to do. But like then 9-11 happened. So suddenly it like became possible to do that. I right. know it's obviously true that the Bush administration did not like try to bring freedom to Saudi Arabia. At the same time, one thing that was frequently raised as an argument against invading Iraq for no reason was like you're going to destabilize the region. And the fact that many of the people – Thought that regional stability was overrated. Like it made a difference in that kind of thinking, right? And then conversely, the Obama administration, right? He comes in, you know, there there is not like a world-changing shift from Bush's foreign policy, but when there is pressure to intervene more forcefully in Syria, he is clearly more reluctant than most actors in the American system. And so we move in less forcefully than we plausibly would have. There's, And we do move in, right? Like there's this tremendous weight of gravity in American foreign policy to like we need to collaborate with our Gulf allies in their regional proxy war against Iran. But the president at that time is always pulling back a little bit on the reins, whereas a different president might have pushed forward or just kind of like gone along with the skids. The Trump administration has so far not, like, had dramatic crisis moments. Um, And sometimes they don't happen, I guess.
1: North Korea is probably the biggest one. Right. But we're not talking, like, something on the scale of 9-11, yeah.
0: Right. I mean, nothing—or even something on the scale of
2: Pulse or San Bernardino. Right. Right. Nothing has happened that shatters, like, the incredible power of the status quo. Right. Like for better or worse. But things do happen. And like and and to your point, like Trump matters more than anybody else in this. But, you know, it was like Trump gave this speech yesterday where he said he was withdrawing troops from Syria. And I think everyone's understanding is
1: that's not true. It's absolutely not true. We literally just in December announced that we were staying for the foreseeable future. And like five minutes after Trump was like, and we're getting out of Syria really soon. Like Heather Nauer, State Department spokesperson was like, yeah, no, we're, that's not correct. So' like, the Trump doesn't like, seem
2: to actually command the armed forces of the United States in a practical sense.
1: But like the, other, the the the
0: thing about the way he framed the Syria thing was that it wasn't a like Bush or Obama style, we're bringing the troops home. It was fuck them we we tried to like we should you know like Let them they deal should with it. Le, yeah like they need to clear up their mess which is like both a fundamental <laughs> understanding of the Syria conflict and, also and who is the they we're talking about because the they is Russia Iran and Assad no but, but well but that's that's the thing <laughs> right. right it's a failure to understand that there are always and already international players in any of these you know theoretical regional disputes there was also you know a news story the other day about how. Trump was skeptical of sending arms to Ukraine because he thought it was Europe's problem. Like he is extremely okay with these are, you know, we don't have to care about things that are happening to other people. And in particular that like, you know, Muslims need to stand up. And if they're not standing up, why should we do anything to to help them? And that kind of that's what's work because that's also the thing that plays into we shouldn't accept any Syrian refugees who are men because if they really cared about their country, they'd be staying and fighting. It's like they're two sides of the same coin.
1: I completely agree. But again, we're we're talking about Trump there, right? And not John Bolton and and Mike Pompeo, right? Like they aren't the same thing. And Trump already thinks these things. I guess my biggest kind of concern or like— I just don't quite buy into the idea that they are going to be that incredibly influential when we've seen, like even those people who tried to come in and be really fucking influential still failed to, like, push Trump to do certain things, right? Like Tillerson was pushing really hard. Mattis was pushing really hard. You know, don't cancel the Iran deal. Don't decertify. like, don't do this. And like they barely managed to push him over the line, like each time to and then then he decertified, right? And, yeah, you know, you could have. Uh, you know, John Bolton and Mike Pompeo kind of stop pushing him. And then, you know, you just kind of unleash Trump's natural instincts. But again, those instincts are still there. So, yeah, there are fewer checks on some of his worst impulses. That's definitely a bad thing. But those checks were really, really weak as it is. And like, I feel like I'm just I'm not sure that John Bolton. Plus, look, we have the mustache issue. It's it's the elephant in the room. We need to talk about the mustache Trump doesn't like it the mustache. It's the walrus in the room. It Elephant is the walrus in the room, touche. Uh, <laughs> well played. Um, I don't know if how you know John Bolton and Trump personally interact, if that's going to generate conflict, right? Like they have interacted on kind of like a limited basis, but it's like they've been one-on-one in like the situation room. And like I have no fucking idea if there's like a crisis, if he's going to be like, yeah, I want John on this. John, give me your give me your best thing. We'll do what John says. Like he's going to be like calling Roger Stone and be like, "What do you guys think?" A- I'm a confused
2: about this mustache issue because,
1: like, <laughs> why doesn't he just shave the mustache? Oh, he's he's hardcore. I mean, if if he has any principle, it's the mustache stays. And this is, I will say,
2: I, I mean, this is dumb, but I think it aligns with the point that you're making that somehow it's like if you really wanted that meeting of the minds, just like Mr. President, like if you want me to
1: shave the mustache. The right, maybe I did it once and it looked really weird. And he's like, trust me, you don't want to see what's I feel like
0: here. there are two kinds of people in Trump's orbit. There are the people like Mike Pompeo who are perfectly happy to do what needs to be done to get along with the president and for the president to stay on their good side. And there are the people who see in Trump an opportunity to, to push their agenda and who therefore are more likely to cycle in and out like in that, you know, that's like where Bannon and Sessions and you know, I think Bolton now kind of come in. This is, our colleague Jane Koston has a theory about Trumpians versus Trumpistas, but that's kind of, that's not quite this. I do think it's worth thinking about though, that like, you know, we have people who are, who see a window of opportunity here. But I, I, that said, I Jen, I feel like you've persuaded me that things are not getting worse because they were like already worse. Like that, that, things I can always get been... so
2: much worse. They
0: I can. think this is
1: naive. They can, honestly, you know, North Korea, I think, is the biggest potential flashpoint. Like, just the you know the Middle East and, like, the idea of U.S. foreign policy and, and Islamophobia, like, it's a domestic issue. Yes, it's, like, a huge—and I care about that. But, like, if we're talking about John Bolton and, and Mike Pompeo, like, they're not really going to be playing as much in that world, right? And the biggest massive, you know, foreign kind of crisis that we have right now is North Korea, and that doesn't really— like, the Islamophobia thing doesn't typically play into the North Korean—you know, perceptions of the North Korean regime. Um, I mean, again, I think I think you're both right on the—if there's a crisis, if there's a, a terror attack, then, like, that's where the, the rubber meets the road, right? Like, that's when is, like, the fucking acid test to find out. Like, here's what we finally know. But again, he's going to pick up the phone and call, you know, Roger Stone. He's going to watch—like, you know— I, I don't know, Hannity is more influential than I think John Bolton would ever be, right? So I think, you know, if John Bolton wants to go on Hannity, maybe he can, you know, push some radical agenda items. But like, I feel like there are already so many insane influences on Trump feeding his impulses that like one additional person who has an office closer to the White House isn't really going to change.
0: I would like to note that this is the second Weeds episode in the last few months that has concluded that uh, going to war is a good like is is a favorable alternative to or prevention of uh, increased racism at home.
1: I'm not no, I'm not I, sure I I'm think taking we're that view going yet. to oh, war okay. at all. No, I, I don't want to go to war. No, but, but but but
0: far as in as North Korea as a major flashpoint
1: does kind of bracket the whole Islam n- narrative. I think us trying to make a peace deal would probably also be useful like to pay. It's just like it's the thing that's happening that's dominating the most kind of attention in terms of foreign policy muscle, right? Like, that's the big thing we're having to deal with. Um, I don't really think it's necessarily the Trump administration's fault, actually, in that case. Like, Trump is right when he talks about that, you know, he was given this crisis, right? Like, that's, that's right. So he didn't start this one, at least. But I mean, isn't
2: there potentially an interconnection between this, right? Like, if you believe that the United States is in a, like, millennia-long twilight struggle with Islam, right— Then the inclination to resolve the North Korea issue by um, being actually quite generous with the North Koreans so that you can say the issue is resolved so that you can go to war with Iran or whatever else seems fairly profound. I mean part of what happened back in 2002 was that the Bush administration did not want to maintain a focus on the North Korea nuclear issue because they had this pet project in Iraq. That they were on, right? I mean, that's this is obviously a complex issue, but like part of the origins of the current North Korea crisis was a deliberate decision by people who had profound ideological concepts about the Middle East to say, look, we want a back burner, this like Northeast Asia situation that while important on its own terms has like nothing to do with like the big ideas that we care about. And now the big ideas are totally different, but like it's the same situation where like nobody cares about Juche. (laughs) Whereas, like, a lot of people have feelings
1: about Islamism. Right. But I think you're that's way, way overstating, like, the degree to which Pompeo and Bolden are these, like, massive, insane ideologues. It's just, like, us versus them, and, like, their biggest foreign policy priority or their biggest worldview is Islam. Like, that's not who these guys are. They've gone on some of these shows. They don't share most of the most radical, like, I I don't want to overpaint them as these, like, Uh, sure, Bannon maybe, but his biggest kind of opponent was probably, like, China and not, you know, Islam even—so even in that sense. So it's not like we have just brought Frank Gaffney and Pam Geller into the White House, right? Like, that would be their huge, like, entire framework for understanding the world. It's not who either of these guys are. It's vastly, vastly overstating it. Like, they have some views that are— super not great Uh, it's a really hard you know way of phrasing it and yes that will play out and yes that's bad right like i don't want to be like it's great but like that's not who they are like they care vastly more about russia and and iran and china and north korea and like there's so many and and ands that it's not like they're going to come in and be like all right let's start a holy war so
2: your crossover message is that everything is great
1: no. no, everything is, is already as it's, bad. As it's not as bad as it can be. It's it's also not as good as it can be. I just think that we already have Trump in the White House. And, and I don't I think we're overstating a little bit the degree to which these people are really going to have a massive, huge impact. I mean, Pompeo was already there. Right. Like he just moved to a different office and ostensibly will have less face time with the president. And Bolton's a guy at, in the N.S.C., you know. So
0: Jen's actual message is nothing is changing on a week-to-week basis, so please listen to three podcasts a week, two Weeds episodes, and one Worldly episode to Absolutely. see if that is still the case.
2: Okay, well, this has been a, a tremendous crossover experience. I woo, was really woo. glad to have you here. Um, I will say the, the the sort of mind-bending crossing over is, in fact, going to continue because with, with Ezra out, we're going to have Dara on on Tuesday, uh, with me and Sarah, and then fridays we're gonna we're gonna switch things up yeah, a
0: rotating uh, cast of weeds hosts
2: so it's it's basically it's crisis on infinite podcasts for fans of 80s crossovers um <laughs> yeah with that uh thanks to our engineer griffin tanner our producer bridget armstrong thanks to our sponsors um and uh thanks to all of you for listening we're gonna be back on tuesday uh,